Well, turn with me to Numbers chapter 10. The book of Numbers is that book near the beginning of the Bible where the pages are stuck together in your Bible because the name scares you. However, we will look in chapter 10 and a few other chapters this evening. I'm always excited to start a new series. It's not something we get to do very often, so I relish these moments. While you're turning there, I want to you know, relate to you in a way that I think we all can understand. Um, anyone who has children has had the experience of taking them to an urgent care medical clinic late at night when they have some sort of burning fever or hacking cough, and you check in and you're politely invited to, and we dread these words, have a seat and the doctor will be right with you. Because we know what that really means. And just once, just one time, I want to go and have the receptionist just bluntly tell the truth and say, have a seat in the waiting room for between 15 minutes and five hours. And at that time, we'll call you and give you the impression that we're about to treat your child. And then we'll bring you to another room where you can sit for another half hour. And then the doctor will see you. And so in that context, we're used to waiting. And certainly we can laugh at some occurrences like that. Waiting a few minutes or waiting even a few hours isn't really anything in the grand scheme of life. But when you begin to wait for weeks and then months and then years and perhaps even decades, now waiting becomes really the greatest test of faith that we endure in this life, particularly when we're faced with the idea that that thing that we're waiting for might never happen. When we look in the mirror and have to honestly say, this might not ever be a reality. And so we can relate to the writer of Psalm 102. He was an afflicted man who was suffering greatly and feeling abandoned by God when he said, I am like a desert owl of the wilderness, like an owl of the waste places. And it's very interesting, this particular owl that he's speaking of is sometimes translated in Hebrew, the little owl, and is listed among all the unclean birds that are not to be eaten by a faithful Jew. It was a common bird in ancient Israel, and in fact was nicknamed the mother of ruins because the little owl or the desert owl would go to tombs and to ruins and you could always find them there in in the scariest desert waste places. And so this is the cry of being alone in the midst of affliction in a waste place in which it seems that all evidence of God is gone. In fact, in Psalm 102 verse 2, the psalmist cries out to God, "'Do not hide your face from me in the day of my distress.'" And the idea of hiding his face is just that the psalmist is waiting and waiting and waiting and there seems to be no resolution to whatever situation he's facing. Numerous times in the Psalms, the writers cry out, How long, O Lord? Psalm 13, verse 1, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Psalm 35, verse 17, How long, O Lord, will you look on, rescue me from their destruction? Psalm 79, verse 5, How long, O Lord, will you be angry forever? Will your jealousy burn like fire? Psalm 89, verse 46, How long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? How long, how long, how long? It just goes on and on. We see this cry continually in Scripture. But King David, writing in Psalm 27, he encourages us with a positive exhortation Concerning waiting on the Lord, he says in Psalm 27, verse 14, Wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. And that's really the point of the series that we're beginning tonight. 
understanding that every believer in Jesus Christ, every person who has repented of their sin, has been born again and made a new creation because of the cross of Christ, we will, in fact, wait on the Lord. That's just part of the deal. That is part of our faith. It is part of living the life to Christ. Now, we did a similar series a couple of years ago, Strength in the River, in which we examined what the great saints of the Bible did when their suffering overwhelmed them, when they were completely consumed by negative circumstances. And we said that they were weeping rivers of tears, as Jeremiah said in Lamentations 3, 48. But there's a, a simultaneous parallel and yet, yet different form of suffering in Strength in the River, we examined how to deal with a situation when it seems that God won't stop just pouring trouble into your life, when you wish he would just back off and relent. But the parallel and yet different form of suffering is when it seems just the opposite, that you wish God would do something, that it seems that he's silent, that he seems to have simply left the scene and you're seeing nothing on the horizon to indicate that He's returning anytime soon. This is when it feels like God has gone radio silent and there's, there's no communication and all the communication between you and God is one way and all of your prayers just seem to float out into the universe never to be heard from again. So how do we follow the admonition of King David in Psalm twenty-seven, fourteen? Wait for the Lord, be strong, let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Well, that's exactly what we want to learn. We want to learn how to have strength in the desert. When you feel like that desert owl in the waste places that are abandoned by God. And like strength in the river, we're going to approach this really as what we might call a biographical theology. Learning lessons from individuals and groups in the Bible in retrospect who now have much to teach us about how to wait on the Lord. Now, the Bible uses a word for desert more commonly as wilderness. So I think it's very appropriate for us to begin quite literally in the wilderness with the nation of Israel. So tonight, imagine that you're seated in your living room and the doorbell rings and very unusually several representatives from the nation of Israel from the 15th century BC are standing on your doorstep and they're dressed very funny and they don't smell very good. They've been outside for 40 years. So, and they didn't have deodorant they didn't have those amenities. You invite them in. They look really thirsty, so you offer them a lot of water. And you ask them, as you settle in, you've had to wait on the Lord. And I suppose that you've learned a lot. What advice can you give me while I'm waiting on the Lord? You are a professional at this by now. And the main lesson they would give would be, they would say, be thankful for God's mercies. Be thankful for God's mercies, that while you wait, the mercies of God, while seemingly small, are in fact there. That he may not be doing your will, but he is in fact doing his will, and that he is there if you will look hard enough. But to help you understand this, we have a 3,500-year gap, and so they would need to help fill you in on the details to begin at the beginning. So we need to catch up to Israel in the wilderness to learn our first lesson on how to have strength in the desert by being thankful for God's mercy. So we have to go back 3,500 years all the way to Mount Sinai where Israel has been gathered by God after having been rescued from Egypt, taken out of slavery to now officially and formally become the chosen nation of God. So we come to the book of Numbers. And we find that God is making final preparations after having given his covenant through Moses to Israel. 
Now, we need to divide our thoughts a little bit to help us organize ourselves this evening. So I just want to divide this into two pieces based on the narrative that will begin to unfold for us. We're going to call this very simply the setting, and then we'll look at the spanking. And I don't know a better way to say that. First, the setting. Preparations are being made to journey to Canaan. They've received the law. They're going now to the promised land, the land promised to Abraham, the forefather of Israel. And it was to be in this land that they would fulfill their purpose as a nation. They had a specific purpose. In this land, they were to be a set-apart, unique nation that was to show off God to all of her neighbors. Israel was not set apart so that she could be a closed-off nation that welcomed no one. In fact, just the opposite. The purpose of Israel is given in Exodus 19, and this is a covenant statement. Beginning in verse 5, Now therefore, this is God speaking, If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and here's the purpose, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. What do priests do? They introduce people to God. And so that's what the nation was to do. And so they're getting ready to go fulfill this purpose, and final preparations are being made. In Numbers 1 through 9, we see just a litany of things that are happening. God commands a census of Israel. They're going to count up how many that we have at this moment. He gives instructions for the Levites, who are the religious leaders of Israel. We have instructions for tribal placement in the camp. What tribes are to camp in what location? He gives instructions on how the tabernacle, that is the the portable worship center, on how that's to be cared for. He gives added clarification on social issues, things like how to care for the sick, how to make restitution to somebody that you've defrauded, even marriage issues, because this is a large nation already and they need to get along. We see in Numbers 1 through 9 the actual first day of the use of the tabernacle and making offerings and learning how to do this, learning how the sacrificial system works. We see the Levites being cleansed for tabernacle service. We see the the people being given commands concerning the Passover and how to continue keeping the Passover. We see instructions to Israel to follow the Lord wherever the cloud of his presence moved. How are they to know where to go? Where the glory of God goes. And then we even get very practical instructions for different blasts of the trumpet on which one says it's a gathering, which one says war is coming, and which one says it's time for a feast. And so all these preparations have been made. Israel has received the law, they've received the covenant of God, and they're ready to leave Sinai. And now about 14 months, just shy of 14 months after being rescued from Egypt, they're ready to fulfill God's mission for them. They would first and foremost be the instrument of God's judgment on the wicked nations of Canaan, and then they would set up this glorious and holy kingdom, holy unto God, in a new nation that would be called Israel. And by now, they are two to three million people strong. This is a large nation. This is a large group to get ready to move. And so this brings us to Numbers chapter 10, verse 11. Numbers chapter 10, verse 11. Follow along with me. In the second year, in the second month, on the 20th day of the month, the cloud lifted from over the tabernacle of the testimony, and the people of Israel set out by stages from the wilderness of Sinai, and the cloud settled down in the wilderness of Paran. 
Now, the precise geographical locations of both Sinai and, and Paran are, are fairly difficult to pinpoint. But generally speaking, the easiest thing to remember is that Mount Sinai is in the south and Paran is to the north. And so if I can have you visualize a map, they escape Egypt up here, go down south towards Sinai, and now they're coming back up. And so that's the beginning point. Numbers 33 gives much more detail that they camped at various specific spots on their way to Paran. Every tribe had a flag or a standard that would lead them out of the camp. They would follow the Shekinah glory of the Lord. Those assigned to carry the tabernacle carried all of its pieces so that Israel would always have a place to meet with God. The tribe of Dan was to act as the rear guard. They were to set security to ensure against enemy raids from behind. And then in Numbers 10, verse 33, we see kind of the, the result of this first journey. Verse 33, So they set out from the mount of the Lord three days' journey, and the ark of the covenant of the Lord went before them three days' journey to seek out a resting place for them. And the cloud of the Lord was over them by day whenever they set out from the camp. And whenever the ark set out, Moses said, Arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. And when it rested, he said, Return, O Lord, to the ten thousand thousands of Israel. Now, if I were writing the story of redemptive history, what I'd like to do is just skip over to Joshua chapter 11, verse 23, which says, So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses, and Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal allotments, and the land had rest from war. And then Joshua 24 Verse 13, God says, I gave you a land on which you had not labored and cities which you had not built and you dwelt in them. You eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. What a happy ending. But instead we have to look to Numbers chapter 11. Verse 1, And the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some outlying parts of the camp. Now, God had already begun miraculously feeding Israel by raining manna on them. What is this manna? Verse 7 tells us, Now the manna was like coriander seed, and its appearance like that of bdellium. The people went about and gathered it, and ground it in handmills, or beat it in mortars, and boiled it in pots, and made cakes of it. And the taste of it was like the taste of cakes baked with oil, and when... The dew fell upon the camp in the night. The manna fell with it. But they were dissatisfied with God's provision. They wanted something different. They wanted something better. And so, in verse 4, Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving, and the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. They forgot that they were slaves when they were receiving those things. And so they request meat. God gave them meat. He gave them quail as far as the eye could see. So they ate. And then for dessert, God brought a plague upon them so that those who complained and craved more than God had given them died. And we might call that strike one. But they didn't stop there. Now that the grumblers were buried, now a leadership rebellion ensued. Moses had married a Cushite woman, possibly Ethiopian, and his sister Miriam and his brother Aaron 
really used this as a pretense to challenge his authority. And we see in Numbers 12, Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married, for he had married the Cushite woman. And they said, Has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? And the Lord heard it. Now the man Moses was very meek, more than all people who were on the face of the earth. And suddenly the Lord said to Moses and to Aaron and to Miriam, Come out, you three, to the tent of meeting. And the three of them came out. And the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the entrance of the tent and called Aaron and Miriam, and they both came forward. And he said, Hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in the vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth, clearly, and not in riddles. And he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? And the anger of the Lord was kindled against them, and he departed. So he gave Miriam a case of leprosy, made her stay outside the camp in humiliation for a week. Aaron repented, confessed the sin of he and his sister, But certainly we might call that strike two. Now, in the case of God disciplining his people when they would not obey and would not fear him, not trust him, the saying, three strikes and you're out, holds true. And here comes strike three. Israel has arrived at the wilderness of Paran. They're close enough to Canaan, literally, to look across the Jordan River to get a good look at the land that God already owned that, he, that was now immorally being occupied by the child-sacrificing and idol-worshiping Canaanites. And so, Numbers 13, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel. From each tribe of their fathers you shall send a man, each one, everyone a chief among them. And so Moses gives the twelve spies their instructions in verses 17 through 20. They were to scout the land, scout the number of people, scout the types of cities, how difficult they would be to raid. They were to bring back some produce, some of the fruit of the land. And so it's late summer or early fall, and out the spies go. And what do they find out? Well, they come back 40 days later, and it's a good news, bad news report. The good news is the land is amazing. They brought back a single cluster of grapes that was so big it had to be carried by two men. The bad news is, though, Numbers 13, verse 28, However, the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. There are lots of fighting men. The descendants of Anak, sometimes known as the Nephilim, an unusually tall people. They're there, very scary. Ten of the spies said, in verse 31, we are not able to go up against the people for they are stronger than we are. And sadly, the people believed them. And this is so sad. In chapter 14, verse 1, then all the congregation raised a loud cry and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we have died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, Let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Now, let me give you a little history in context here. Fourteen months earlier, God had defeated the largest standing army on planet Earth for Israel. 
That's first historical fact. Second historical fact, this area of Canaan that they were going to conquer, archaeology has shown us that there were very certainly about 100,000 fighting men in Canaan. That's a large army. However, Exodus 12, verse 13 says, The people of Israel journeyed from Ramesses to Succoth about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. Exodus thirty-eight twenty-six specifically says 603,550. That's a six-to-one ratio. Look, I'm not much of a fighter, but if there's six of me and one of you, I'll do that. <laughs> Let me put this in perspective. The size of the Israelite army was about half the size of the entire standing United States military, all branches today. It would have been the most massive army on earth at that time. And yet they were afraid. But there were two men of faith among the spies, the, the famous Joshua and Caleb. They, they tore their clothes and begged the people. Verse 7 of chapter 14, this is a good land. Verse 8, the Lord will give us this land. In verse 9, they plead, only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land, for they are, are bread for us. Their protection is removed from them and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. But would they listen? Verse 10, Then all the congregation said to stone them with stones. But the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. What do we call that? Strike three. Strike three. And Moses interceded in prayer for his people when God threatened to destroy them and fulfill his purposes through Moses and the new nation. God would forgive, but he would discipline. So that's the setting, and now comes the spanking. God issues his decree, his discipline, his spanking of this nation. In chapter 14, verse 20, Then the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word. But truly as I live and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and yet have put me to the test these ten times have not obeyed my voice shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers. And none of those who despise me shall see it. Now he says... Put me to test these ten times. There are either other tests that are not recorded in Scripture, or more likely this is simply a sign of fullness or completeness. In other words, it's a way of saying, they have fully tested my limits all the way to the end. And so how would God make it to where none of the adults would see Canaan? Verse 26, And the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron, saying, How long shall this wicked congregation grumble against me? I have heard the grumblings of the people of Israel, which they grumble against me. Say to them, As I live, declares the Lord, what you have said in my hearing, I will do to you. Your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness. And of all your number, listed in the census from 20 years old and upward, who have grumbled against me, not one shall come into the land where I swore that I would make you dwell, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua the son of Nun, but your little ones, who you said would become a prey, I will bring in, and they shall know the land that you have rejected. But as for you, your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness, and your children shall be shepherds in the wilderness forty years, and shall suffer for your faithlessness, until the last of your dead bodies lies in the wilderness. According to the number of the days in which you spied out the land, forty days, a year for each day, you shall bear your iniquity 40 years and shall know my displeasure. 
I, the Lord, have spoken. Surely this I will do to all this wicked congregation who are gathered together against me. In this wilderness they shall come to a full end, and there they shall die. And just to make his point, make sure they understood that he was serious, in verse 37, the ten spies who led the people to distrust the Lord dropped dead instantly. So the spanking is 40 years wandering in the wilderness until everyone aged 20 and above dies. I'm sure the 19-year-olds were really happy to be a little bit younger at that point. Basically now, two years have passed since Egypt, uh, or since Israel escaped Egypt. So there's 38 years left to wander in the wilderness. And what a spanking this is going to be. Chapters 15 through 19 cover the next 37 of those 38 years. And just to skim over it quickly, some of the things that happened to them, the people didn't believe Moses when he delivered God's verdict. And so they said, basically, hey, look, we sinned. We're sorry about that. We'll just move on from here. And so they got up to go into battle against the Amalekites, against Canaanites in the hill country, and they were defeated immediately. No, you will not get out of God's discipline. This time of discipline was meant to teach God's people that if God is going to take his end of his covenant seriously, then they're going to take their end of the covenant seriously as well. They're going to learn. He promised victory to them if they would obey. They had chosen to not trust the God who had slaughtered the whole Egyptian army on their behalf just two years earlier. And now, as evidence that they're not taking God's covenant seriously, some weren't taking the sign of the covenant seriously— And that is the Sabbath day of rest. This was the day that was meant to demonstrate their trust in the Lord by by stopping their labor, by ceasing from their work, but just resting in Him. Chapter 15, verse 32, look with me at that verse. While the people of Israel were in the wilderness, they found a man gathering sticks on the Sabbath day. Well, isn't that a horrible thing? Absolutely. The reason is, is that it may not seem like a very big violation to you, but this is a deliberate forget you, God, forget your covenant. I'm going to do what I want. I'm not going to care about the sign. I'm not going to care about the law. So to teach all of Israel a lesson, he made the entire congregation come and stone that man to death. Now that's church discipline like we've never seen before. Sometime later, the tribes of Levi and Reuben, led by Korah, the son of Ishar, and two brothers, Dathan and Ibaram. They gathered 250 clan chiefs. And these were not, these were not uh, unsmart men. These were smart men because they got 250 of the most popular clan chiefs in all of Israel. And what did they do? They challenged the leadership of Moses and Aaron again. See how it goes back and forth from the people to the leaders, people to the leaders. And so Moses told all the rebels to gather in the sight of all the people so that God would reveal who his chosen leaders are. Let's just let God make the determination. When they were gathered, God told Moses and Aaron in number 16, beginning in verse 21, he said, move away from the whole congregation, from all the people, so that I can kill everybody and I'll start over with you. Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before God. They begged God to be merciful and so instead, God had all the people move away from the tents and the families of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. And the earth opened up, and down they went. Families, tents, possessions, everything. The earth closed over them, and a minute later, you would never know that they had even existed. 
And what about the 250 other chiefs who were in rebellion? They, they watched this with horror, but they didn't have long to think about it. Number 1635 records that they were consumed by fire. Well, certainly Israel will learn that lesson now. Wow, I need to follow the admonition of the Lord. I need to follow God's chosen leaders. Nope. The next day, the next day, the people grumbled against Moses and Aaron. Number 1641, you have killed the people of the Lord. Here we go again. And so God says to Moses and Aaron, step away from the people. I'm taking them out. And once again, Moses and Aaron fall on their faces to intercede for God's people. By the way, this shows us a clear pattern that we as sinners need a mediator. We need an intercessor. Gives us a clear picture of Christ's future ministry on our behalf. And once again, God relented, and instead of judging all the people of God, he only killed 14,700 of them. And so for 37 years, God continues disciplining his people for their unbelief and lack of trust in him. And then the story slows down. And in chapter 20, we get to the 40th year, a year of final spanking and of massive transitions. In the first month of the 40th year, we see Miriam, the sister of Moses, the one who had placed him in the basket in the water when he was a baby. She dies. The people grumbled again because they were afraid they would run out of water. And so God told Moses to speak to the rock at Meribah and water would come out. And in his anger, Moses struck the rock at Meribah, struck it twice. Water did come out, but both Moses and Aaron were disciplined by the Lord. They would not enter the promised land. They too would die in the wilderness. In the second month, in the wilderness at Kadesh, Moses sent representatives to the king of Edom. These are the people descended from Esau, so they were essentially related to Israel. He asked for safe passage through their land, that they wouldn't touch anything, they wouldn't harm anything, and Edom refused, so they would have to go all the way around. In the third month of the 40th year, they journeyed the long way around Edom to Mount Hor on Edom's border. The fourth month, just three months after their sister died, Aaron, the brother of Moses, the beginning of the priesthood of Israel, he dies. But before he died, because he rebelled along with Moses, he was stood publicly and stripped of his priestly garments publicly, and then he died. In the fifth month, all of Israel mourned for Aaron for 30 days. In the sixth month, the people, take a wild guess, grumbled again. They became impatient as they were traveling the rest of the way all the way around Edom. Numbers 21, verse 5, And the people spoke against God and against Moses, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Mothers, how would you like it if your children came to the table and said, I loathe this worthless food? It's ungrateful. And so, like a good father who's never at a loss for creative ways to discipline his children, God sent poisonous snakes, and many of Israel died. Well, the people repented. They asked for mercy, so God had Moses make a a bronze serpent and set it on a pole, and any bite victims who looked at the bronze serpent would live. And so now, in the final year, basically every month, something is happening. All while Israel is waiting to go to the promised land. Now, what does all of this have to do with having strength in the desert? 
Israel in the wilderness seemingly jumping from one agony to another, just jumping from one difficulty to another, to another, to another, literally just waiting for a generation to die. Joshua and Caleb waiting 38 extra years, young, faithful men and women who were teenagers on the cusp of having a new home and a new life, having to wait until they're in their late 50s to see this. Essentially, the heart of their life wasted in the desert. What would these faithful who had waited so long maybe say to you in your time of waiting if, if some of these Israelites could sit in your home and share with you what did they learn and why did they say at first, be thankful for God's mercies? All the time they were in the wilderness, jumping from sin to sin, disaster to disaster, judgment to judgment, God was working and he was giving mercies to them. If they would just look. As a matter of fact, he gave so many mercies that we have to lump them into several categories. And let me lump them together into four different categories of mercies that God gave them during these difficult years. The first we might call daily mercies. He gave daily mercies. Two key texts, and you don't have to turn to them, but just maybe make a note of them. Deuteronomy chapter 8 and Deuteronomy 29 help us understand the mercies of God. In Deuteronomy 8, verse 4, and 29, 5, and 6, Moses is reviewing all that's happened in the past 40 years. As a matter of fact, these speeches of Moses will make up the book of Deuteronomy, and these speeches happen in the 11th month of the 40th year. And so we're right at the very end. And he gives us information that's really nothing short of astounding. Between Deuteronomy 8, 4, and then also Deuteronomy 29, 5, and 6, we get three pieces of information that tell us about the love and the care and the compassion and the daily mercies of the Lord on his people. First, we see something astounding that their clothing didn't wear out. Their clothes didn't wear out, including their sandals. Considering the fact that they're walking outdoors for 40 years and walking miles and miles and miles, this is nothing short of miraculous. And yet he took care of them. They were in survival mode. They couldn't stop to make new sandals. They couldn't go through the long, long, arduous process of creating new clothing. And so their clothes didn't wear out. The second piece of information we get is that they were protected from the damaging physical effects of walking great distances. Deuteronomy 8 verse 4 says, Your foot did not swell these 40 years. Now, some of you have experienced this. Feet can swell after walking long distances from edema, which is brought on by dehydration. And so, considering the fact that they're walking and they're in a desert, God preventing about three million people from feeling the physical effects of this wandering is remarkable. And then there's a third little mercy, daily mercy. They never one time lacked for food, not once. They always had manna, they always had plenty. My mentor, Dr. Keith Essex, said once that the most popular book in these 40 years was 100 ways, 101 Ways to Prepare Manna. That everyone was reading that. Listen, there is no human explanation for Israel's survival in this wilderness. They should have all died, not just some of them. Two to three million people should have all passed away. To this day, you cannot possibly support that number of people in the northern Sinai wilderness and desert. It's not possible, even today. So just the survival of Israel was a daily mercy. Now, let me ask you a question. If for 40 years straight, 
you never lacked one single thing that you needed because of God, what would you call that? I would call that A, mercy, and I would call that B, being a Christian. That's what a Christian is. Jesus said it this way to all who would follow him. He said in Matthew 6, beginning in verse 25, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are not you of more value than they? There's a very, very simple application to being thankful for God's daily mercies. Be thankful for God's daily mercies. That's it. What was it that got them in trouble? What got Israel in trouble was a grumbling attitude. Did you notice that? It was an internal attitude of not being thankful. To, to have food provided for you every day of your life without having to work a single minute for it. And yet they were unthankful for that. And so you simply ask questions. Did you have enough for today? Did you? Yes. Did you see some sunshine today? This is Bakersfield. We always get that blessing. Did you breathe God's air today? Yes. Did you have one reason to smile today? Sure. Did you have one or two or even three moments of enjoyment? Absolutely. Let that be enough. That's enough. Then instead of only bemoaning what you're waiting for, you thank God for the mercies that he gave you today. And all of a sudden, and I like to tell people this, you get to the end of a day and you've done another one. Every one of you have gotten to the end of every day successfully. You have. There's another category of mercies. We might call these spiritual mercies. Spiritual mercies. I know that sometimes when you're waiting on the Lord, it can feel like God is picking on you, bullying you even. You're waiting for a restored relationship. You're waiting for any relationship. You're waiting for good news where there only seems to be bad news. Maybe waiting for help in a physical challenge or a disease. You're, you're watching the calendar. You're watching the years tick by. We don't have very many years. And so it becomes discouraging when what we sometimes call the best years of our life are spent waiting for something. And by the way, when it becomes apparent that your wait may extend beyond this lifetime into eternity, that can become very discouraging. That can be hard. But God is, in fact, at work, and he is giving spiritual mercies. And I want to suggest three. The first spiritual mercy he gives is loving discipline. Loving discipline. Due to their rebellion, Israel spent 40 years in the wilderness with two to five inches of rain per year instead of in the lush hills and valleys and rivers and farmland of Canaan. But when Moses was reviewing the past 40 years, listen to how he describes it in Deuteronomy 8, verse 5. He says, Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son... The Lord your God disciplines you. And of course, we know from Hebrews 12, verse 6, for the Lord disciplines the one he, what? Loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Now, to my knowledge, there's no text that says that every single person who died in the wilderness was under the judgment of God. The ones who were under judgment tended to die instantly and, and horribly. Now, yes, all of those 20 and over died in the wilderness, but that doesn't mean we automatically assume that every single one of them was permanently cut off from God's people forever. Even in the New Testament, God disciplines his own people even all the way to death. 
1 Corinthians 11, verse 30 gives us an example. But we're to remember that death is only the end of this phase of life for the Christian. And God provides loving discipline, yes, even all the way up to death. But in the life to come, the believer in Christ is still with him and better off for the discipline. And for those who lived, for those who lived through the wilderness time, in this life they got to experience the wonderful spiritual mercy of loving discipline. And in the midst of discipline, you don't have to say, I've got to figure out what God is teaching me. He will make sure you learn. He will make sure you change. Your character will grow. You will be a different person. In fact, one of those benefits is our second spiritual mercy. The second spiritual mercy that I would suggest is that you receive a humble heart. You receive a humble heart. The Lord values and cherishes humility. Even Christ himself demonstrated humility by condescending to come down to this filthy earth from the perfection of heaven. Philippians 2 tells us that story of his condescension. Humility is the opposite of sinful pride, and it could be really said to be the the essence of what God desires to build in us, to make us more and more like Christ. It is humility that is the base. It is the foundation of allowing husbands to love their wives, wives to respect their husbands, employees to submit to difficult employers, church members to submit to imperfect leadership, citizens to submit to an imperfect government. And if we could put it this way, submission to authority and and humility is a major characteristic of a Christian. And submission and pride cannot coexist. They can't. You have one or you have the other. And the Lord provided this humble heart to Israel. How did he do this? Well, we come back to the manna once again. The manna fulfilled God's spiritual purposes far beyond just dealing with the fact that there were no grocery stores in the wilderness. That wasn't the only reason for manna. He provided the manna to make them learn that if God does not provide for you, you will go hungry. To make them learn that they should worry less about what goes in their mouths and more about what comes out of the mouth of God. Moses said in his review in Deuteronomy 8 verse 3, this will be very familiar to you. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And now in the the 11th month of the 40th year, as Moses is preaching to them in what would be written as Deuteronomy, every single person listening, with the exception of Joshua, Caleb, and Moses, everyone was 59 or younger. And every one of them had watched their parents drop dead in the wilderness because they did not, what? Listen to the word of the Lord. And so now when Moses tells them, It is time for you to listen to the word of the Lord. What is this generation going to say? Yes, sir. Yes, I will. I think that when Moses was giving the word of the Lord once again, there was a great sense of sobriety, a great sense of seriousness, and understanding that when God says listen, he means it. I don't think you can put a price tag on the humility that is gained through suffering the dependence that's wrought and forged as a result of waiting on the Lord. If you get everything you want all the time, if you never suffer in any way, really, have you learned to be dependent? You haven't. Instead of complaining too much about waiting, my admonition to you is to dig in and thank God for the character that he must be building in you. 
and you go with it. Let it be okay. Stop building a fantasy future about when you'll be content. Be content now. Then in the midst of waiting, don't disappoint yourself by getting to the end of that trial and having never conquered contentment. Be content first, not just at the end. There's a third category of mercies we might call covenant mercies. Covenant mercies. As we look through the book of Numbers in this wilderness wandering, there's no evidence that the tabernacle was maintained. There's no evidence that the structure and the tribal unity of Israel was maintained. There's no indication of any Passovers being remembered. No indication that the Day of Atonement was kept. No evidence at all that they even kept the law at all during these 40 years. And yet God had made a covenant with them. He promised them in Exodus 19, verse 5, Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession. They didn't obey his voice. And yes, God threatened to wipe out Israel numerous times. And listen, listen carefully, he fully intended to do it. He fully intended to wipe them out because he could have still fulfilled all of his covenant promises through Moses. He could fulfill his end of the bargain. But I want you to remember that the sovereign plan of God has an end and it has a means to that end. The means by which God decreed that he would have mercy on this rebellious people is that Moses and Aaron would intercede. I don't know about you, But if God told me, let me wipe them out and I'll make you the king of a new nation, that might be tempting. And yet, what did he do? Both he and Aaron fell on their faces multiple times and interceded. God fully intended to wipe them out, but he also decreed the means by which he would have mercy. In fact, we can see God's covenant mercy with two pieces of evidence. First, as Israel approached the end of the 40th year, we we begin to see just a little light at the end of the tunnel. In the sixth month, they experienced their first real military victory. They defeated the king of the Amorites and the king of the city of Bashan. In the eighth month, the strong nation of Moab attempted treachery against Israel through the false prophet Balaam, but that was put down as well. And so they got a little taste of what it felt like to be God's chosen nation. A little wow factor of what it means to have God going before you. And the second evidence of God's covenant faithfulness God had promised Abraham 600 years earlier that his offspring, the nation from his body, would be as innumerable as the stars of the heavens and as the sand of the seashore. These promises are given in Genesis 15 and Genesis 22. Well, millions of Israelites dropping dead in the wilderness would seem to negate that promise. It's not very helpful. But God is very faithful to his promise to Abraham. Exodus 38, verse 20, says that Israel left Egypt with 603,550 men aged 20 or more. With women and children, we can estimate easily 2 to 3 million people. Numbers 26, verse 31, says at the end of, 18, of, of 40 years, rather, Israel had 601,730 men for a total loss of only 1,820. That's phenomenal. But wait, there's more. By the time you add up all the people that God killed instantly in judgment during the 40 years, you actually come out thousands of people ahead. How is that possible? No one has ever been able to figure that out. They started with 3 million. Most of them dropped dead in the wilderness, and then they end with 3 million. That is God's covenant faithfulness. 
When God makes a covenant, he sticks to it. God made a covenant with you. He made a covenant with all who would receive Jesus Christ as Savior. It's called the New Covenant, which replaced God's covenant with Israel, really the, the next step in his redemptive plan. And this New Covenant includes a promise from Christ himself. In John 6, beginning in verse 39, Jesus says, And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. And then we get another promise in Revelation 21, verse 4. In your resurrected state on the new earth, quote, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Now, I don't want you to let this walk by you. Do you realize what those two promises mean? It means that everything you have ever been waiting for is perfectly resolved. Did you catch that? Everything you've ever been waiting for. Why? Because God is a covenant-keeping God, and he never lets loose ends go untied. He always ties them up. There's one more category of mercies we might call redemptive mercies. Redemptive mercies. The redemptive plan of God is a title sometimes given to the overarching decree of God, the, the plan of God to glorify himself throughout the scope of human history. It began in the mind of God at the beginning and culminates in the final kingdom with the new heaven, new earth, new Jerusalem. And of course, the central figure in the redemptive plan of God is Jesus Christ himself. And even in the wilderness, all the way back in the book of Numbers, God was providing for Israel shadows, and portraits, and promises, and pictures of their coming Messiah, the one who would save them from their sin by his substitutionary sacrifice. In essence, telling them that 1,500 years before his physical birth on earth, the Lord Jesus was still watching out for them. On occasion, in the wilderness, God would provide water from a rock, the miraculous provision given to his people, to a thirsty people, The Apostle Paul said of God's people in the wilderness in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 4, they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. He's already there in shadow form. And when God commanded Moses to make a bronze serpent for the people being bitten by snakes to look to and to live, the Apostle Paul said in in 1 Corinthians 10, 9, they were actually putting Christ himself to the test, that God would provide the solution to their sin. And Jesus said in John 3, verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, meaning that he would be put on a cross to die for the sins of all who would look to him for mercy, just like looking to the bronze serpent. And listen, when God does anything, it is always, 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 100% of the time, part of the bigger picture of his redemptive plan. This is important to understand that when you're waiting on the Lord, your waiting has a bigger purpose than just you. You're part of the tapestry of all that God is doing, and it simply includes you. And so how should you view this? How should you view your own personal time of waiting? Well, you view it like a wonderful mystery that's going to be resolved in the future. I I think we're going to have just 
tons of glorious aha moments with the Lord in the future when he explains these things to us. In the future, when you see God's wisdom for allowing you to wait and to wait and to wait and to say, how long, O Lord? How long, O Lord? How long, O Lord? Maybe even having to wait beyond this life. When you see his wisdom, I think you won't be able to keep yourself from shouting and singing and celebrating that the wisdom of God And just saying, wow, how wise is my God. That of course, that's the only thing he should have done was to make me wait. That's the only right option. And so for these Israelites seated in your living room and giving advice, they would say, be thankful for God's daily mercies, his spiritual mercies, his covenant mercies, and his redemptive mercies. And if you feel like that little desert owl of Psalm 102, I am like a desert owl of the wilderness, like an owl of the waste places. There's a little bit more you should know about that owl. The desert owl is the sun is setting in the desert as darkness closes over the waste places. It sings a musical note that any ancient Near Eastern traveler would recognize and they would hear at dusk. And what's unusual about the desert owl is that it bows and it sways and it moves as it sings. Perfectly content, even in the desert, even in the darkness, you can be the desert owl who, as it were, sings and sways in contentment. Content in the waste places, content to be in the desert. Why is that? Because unlike the desert owl, you're not alone. God is already there in victory. What do you mean God is already there in victory? I'd like to close with Psalm 68, verse 4. Just listen. Sing to God. Sing praises to his name. Lift up a song to him who rides through the deserts. His name is the Lord. Exalt before him. Our Father, we are cognizant that every person here, either now or in the near future, will be waiting on you that you never bring all things to fruition in this life, that you make us wait, sometimes for very hard and very heavy things. Sometimes you make us wait to find out if we're going to live. Sometimes you make us wait to find out if we will have a wife or a husband or have children or if we will have provision, if we will have a relationship, if we will have restoration of broken and hurt relationships. There's so much that we must wait upon. And even as we get older and as our bodies begin to decay, we become even more aware of the fact that now we're we're waiting for restoration of our bodies. We're waiting for our home. And we we look ahead and every person here, Lord, we're, we're waiting and waiting. And the final end of that wait will be having to, each one of us individually, face a moment in which our bodies stop face a moment in which we die and so the wait for us is very real it is very much part of our lives and so lord as we have begun this series to have strength in the desert it's my prayer that you would teach us to be extremely faithful extremely in the case of tonight's lesson thankful for your mercies to take each day And to be able to look back in retrospect and genuinely be grateful and thankful to you for the food that we ate, for the fellowship we enjoyed, the word of God that we heard or read, 
the prayers that we prayed, the songs that we sang, the goodness that we saw, whether in nature or whether among humanity. We pray, Lord, that you would teach us to be thankful so that then, whether it's one year or ten years or a lifetime, the weight itself is what causes our contentment and what causes our joy. We thank you so much for your faithfulness, and we would pray especially for those who do not know Jesus Christ as their Savior. The clock is ticking for them, and their weight could end in a horrible, horrible judgment. And so we would pray that you would be merciful to them, that you would save them, and begin them on their journey toward heaven. We pray these things for Christ's sake and for his glory. Amen.